Good afternoon, everybody. Today on The Graduates, Fabrizio Cariani discusses all things language and philosophy and what we ought to do. Stay tuned. Everybody and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. You're tuned to University of California and listener-supported KALX 90.7. I'm your host, Emily Ellers, a graduate student myself. This week we'll be speaking with Fabrizio Cariani, a graduate student in the philosophy department working on a philosophical model for what we ought to do. Thanks for joining us, Fabrizio. Thank you very much. First, what is a philosophical model of the word ought? Yes. Well, uh, let me just say something in general about what is it to give a philosophical model about some fragment of language, right? So we have this project, uh, which is to explain how language works, right? And this is a project that philosophers share with other people, like lingui- linguists and maybe cognitive scientists as well. But uh, so that's the very general line of work, right? And now within this line of work, there's a pretty strong division of labor. Certain people work on certain things, certain people work on other things. And so one thing that I've been working on, which is something at the intersection of what linguists and philosophers do, is to think about questions like, given a fragment of language, you know, given a a certain piece of natural language, how is it that the uh, sentences that we can express using this fragment of language uh, get their meaning? Or, you know, how do their meaning depend on their structure? in particular, the meaning of the particular words that compose them, right? And uh, this is kind of interesting because it gets you into question about how is it you're going to explain things like, uh, well, uh, the, the way in which information is transmitted from one person to the other and what, it, what kind of information is it that's communicated by certain sentences. And that's the kind of thing that we're trying to represent, right? So some idea of how the sentences, the meanings of sentences depend on their structure and some idea of how sentences get to communicate information. Okay. Like other parts of science, we try to give <laughs> formal models of this. And uh, this is the line of business that I'm in. So, and uh, my, my little chunk of this business, you know, my little garden, is how art works and uh, how words that in general involve something like normativity, uh, mm-hmm. h- how, how they work. And that's, that's kind of my, my little courtyard. So how does art work then? There is a kind of a traditional theory, which uh, is the theory that I resist in my dissertation, uh, which what it tries to do is say that these sentences involving odd, uh, they're kind of like disguised claims about what's necessary in an ideal world. So that when I say uh, I ought to water my plants, what I'm actually communicating is something like that in an ideal world, I wouldn't necessarily be watering my plants. So this is an attempt to explain how art works in terms of this notion of ideality and this notion of necessity. Okay. Uh, so I have some techie arguments, which this is not the right venue for them, uh, which try to oppose this kind of view. And so what I try, the view I try to defend is a view on which these claims involving art actually express comparisons between uh, different actions. So that when I say something like, I ought to water my plants, what I mean is, um, I ought to water my plants as opposed to maybe 
uh, pouring sand on them or burying them underground. So that there is kind of always an implicit contrast class, you know, a reference, uh, well, a class that gives you alternative options you could have pursued in this art claims. At least insofar as there are certain uses of art which are a bit bizarre if you have an analysis like that. So there are some corners of my dissertation in which I say some strange things about what goes on with things like a sentence, when a sentence like, there ought to be no wars. Right? That's a sentence that involves an art, but it's not a sentence that involves a choice between different courses of action. Right? It's not, uh, it's not saying so- somebody, some agent should make it the case that there are no wars. In a sense, it's a universal sentence. It has to do with what everybody ought to do. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But the basic picture I'm defending is this picture in which the normal kinds of odd sentences, the one like, I ought to water my flowers, uh, they express comparisons between different courses of actions. And then for these other sentences, I'll say something fancy with, uh, in the dissertation. So if there's not a unified model of ought, what's the alternative? On the standard view, on the view that I was defending before, uh, they try to give a, a unified model of, of odds because both sentences they mentioned, the watering the flowers sentence and the there ought to be no war sentence, both of the sentences you could think, you could try to treat with this idea of ideality. You could say, well, ideally, it's necessary... You know, if the world were to be ideal, it would be necessary that there shouldn't be wars in the world or something. So those people who use that theory try to give a unified account. Mm-hmm. So, but I have some ob- since I have some objections to that theory, I'm sort of skeptical of the possibility of having a unified account. So what I try to do is do uh, a theory that has some ambitions of generality, but it's not the most, possi- most general possible theory. You're tuned to The Graduates on 90.7 Cal-X. We're speaking with Fabrizio Cariani, a philosophy doctorate student, on his dissertation studying ought models. Well, what are your objections to the universal ought model? One of the things we want to explain with these models, the, the kinds of models that I use, is why is it that inferences are acceptable? Okay, So here's an example. From the sentence, everybody ought to water their flowers, it, follows, it seems like it follows that I ought to water my flowers. Right? That's the kind of thing that our theory should explain. Why is it that these kinds of inferences are things that we accept? These transitions between thoughts are things we accept. Okay. But now, there's also a way of uh, sort of failing at this, which is not just failing to explain the acceptability of some inference, but also predicting uh, the acceptability of a lot of other inferences that you shouldn't be predicting. All right, so, and here's where the, the standard theory goes wrong, but it gets complicated to explain why it goes wrong. But basically, the standard theory predicts that from the sentence, I ought to water my flowers, it follows that I ought to either water my flowers or uh, kill a random pedestrian in the road. It has bizarre consequences about what kinds of odd claims follows from other odd claims. Basically, it predicts that uh, whenever, whenever an odd claim is true, like I ought to water my flowers, it follows from that that I ought to do anything that follows from my watering the flowers. So in particular, among the things that follow from watering the flowers is that I either water the flowers or kill the random pedestrian. Uh, So that's the kind of general line of objection. I understand it could get a bit complicated to see why there would be these consequences. But but that's one consequence. Can I just ask you on that briefly? I don't don't understand how the two are even... Related, like I don't know that I would say I ought to water my flowers, I ought, or I'm going to kill a pedestrian. I don't. Well, it's not something you would say because, uh, well, 
the, I chose the example so that the second sentence would be kind of a dramatic sentence. Uh, but uh, you could pick an example uh, in which the, 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 what, what, what came after the or, instead of killing a random pedestrian, was something else that was more relevant. So you could think, uh, from the claim, I ought to water my flowers, it follows on this view that I ought to either water my flowers or kill them. The flowers, mm-hmm. right? That's still relevant. I mean, w- what you found bizarre about that sentence that I gave you was that the thing after the or seemed like it was had nothing to do with with this, the rest of the sentence, but but the view still predicts predicts that for every sentence like that, it should still follows from I ought to water the flowers. So including again, I ought to water my flowers or cut them off. So that's that's the general line of objection. It's actually not even an objection that's original with me. It's an objection that uh, basically goes back to the 1940s. Throughout this period, there has been the general belief that you could sort of explain away the apparent badness of these inferences using some other part of the theory. Because the theory is very complicated, as, as you're getting a sense of. And uh, so there's, you know, a lot of knobs you can turn to try to have things come out right. And uh, people have wanted to turn some knobs. And so part of the argument of the dissertation is to say, well, you can't turn the knobs that way. But that's basically the general reason why I think this view fails and why I prefer a view of the kind that I was describing before in which odd sentences express comparisons between courses of actions. What I'm trying to do is trying to use this idea of comparison, which is an idea that people have used in philosophy in, in trying to explain other how other parts of language work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so people have tried to say that uh, claims about knowledge express comparisons so that, you know, I may know that the animal in the garden is a tiger rather than a zebra, uh, and that's that's that the knowledge has this kind of comparison built into it. Uh, similarly, people have wanted to say that causation has, but basically the idea is there's lots of parts of language that intuitively looks like they involve comparisons of some kind. And so what I try to do is use the models that people have developed, or look at the model the models that people have developed for these parts of language, and try to adapt them to the problems that I've been working on on this normative bits of language. So why does it matter that ought has multiple definitions? There, there's actually a, a lot of different interesting uses of ought. Philosophers have, you know, have distinguished them all and, you know, sort of come up with a, like, big classification of all kinds of uses of ought. People have distinguished, for example, what philosophers call the instrumental ought from a, what they call a categorical ought. So the idea is that the instrumental ought is what with the one that expresses what you ought to do given some kind of goals that you may have. So, for example, you know, supposing that you, uh, you really want to become a good tennis player, then in a context in which that's presupposed, it makes sense for me to tell you you ought to practice you know, five times a week. But that doesn't mean that sort of if you were a good moral agent, uh, you would practice five times a week. It just means given your goal of becoming a very good tennis player, practicing times a week is the thing you ought to do. Contrastingly, uh, there is this idea of an absolute art or a categorical art, which is, so for example, the, the sense is that uh, a sentence like, I ought to kill children, sorry, I ought to refrain from killing chi- children, that sentence, uh, there's a sense in which that has a force that goes beyond some particular goal I may have. It, you know, it's an uh, it's an art that sort of stems from morality itself. So philosophers have distinguished these arts, and there is a question when you do the kind of work that I'm doing, which is a lot less substantive than the works that philosophers in this tradition have done, is how you're going to do justice to all these distinctions. So what I try to do in my project is to 
explain some of these distinctions as distinctions between contexts. So the idea is that there are going to be some contexts in which it's presupposed that we're talking about somebody's goals, and then there's going to be other contexts in which what we're talking about is uh, morality itself, mm -hmm. right? And that's how we're going to explain this idea. How do different models of ought vary with culture? I mean, is it just in the United States where we have multiple definitions of ought? That's, that's actually an excellent question. And uh, it's very interesting. So the, this, this things, this things I call it these deontic concepts, like ought. Mm -hmm. They're actually, even in English, there are very different ways of expressing them. You could think, for example, that uh, should means the same as ought. And that's actually roughly what I think. So that's saying you ought to water the flowers and you should water the flowers. That, that kind of thing is roughly the same thing. But there is also a use of must, uh, which is sort of in this general line. And so you could say something like, uh, you must water the flower. Now, you could also have the contracture that must, in this use, also means the same as ought and should. But actually, it turns out that some linguists are skeptical about this view. So they think, look, if it meant, if it meant that, we wouldn't be able to explain sentences like this. Everybody ought to wash their hands. Employees must. All right? So imagine you're in the bathroom of a restaurant. If ought and must meant the same thing, it seems that the claim that's been made about employees in some sen is in some sense redundant. When, when I say everybody ought to wash their hands, well, that includes employees. So there's nothing to be added by saying employees must. And so that make, makes people think, and I, and I sort of agree with that view, that uh, must has a kind of slightly stronger force than, than ought. Everybody would wash their hands if they were good enough human beings, but uh, employees get fired if they don't or something. Uh, and so there's a sense in which the must there is adding something that makes it stronger. Another bizarre thing about this odd thing has to do with how they go in different languages. So English is actually very special in having a dis designated word like odd for this concept. I'm actually not sure, for example, that my native language, Italian, has a distinct uh, word that means exactly the same like odd. And so, for example, the distinction between odd and, odd and must is a bit difficult to explain in Italian. Uh, and if you were to explain it you would have to do uh, some fancy playing around with the language. So what's bizarre about this is that it's not like Italians don't have the concept. We do have the concept, but we have to do something special with, uh, in order, with our language in order to explain it quite the same concept. What is it? Well, so there is a distinction between various moods uh, of, a, of a verb, so, which in English it's kind of hard to describe, but it's roughly the distinction between the indicative mood and the subjunctive mood. And so Italian has a special mood, uh, which is called the conditional mood. Then does what you're doing apply to Italian, or is it strictly specific to the English language? That's a very good question, too. Um, it, it, it applies to Italian in a roundabout way, in a sense. What I'm trying to do is modeling the behavior of a certain concept of English. Now, the concept is happens to be expressed by a, by a particular word, and in Italian it happens to be a little bit harder to express that same concept. The same concept is, like I said, well alive in the minds of Italian native speakers. So uh, the, there's a sense in which the work I'm doing is perfectly relevant to the study of how Italian works, because it's a study in a sense of how a particular concept works. Uh, on the other hand, it's not quite as clear as in English. At, at the very least, it's possible that the same concept could be possessed by 
people speaking different languages. You're listening to The Graduates on the University of California and listener-supported KALX 90.7. I'm here with Fabrizio Cariani, a philosophy graduate student. We had been talking about ought and deontic models, but I kind of want to talk about other work that you've done surrounding groups, aggregating individual opinions into collective opinions. Mm-hmm. This, this other work is completely separate from the stuff that I've been doing. Mm-hmm. It still is connected because it has to do with how you're going to do formal models of various things, but it's a completely different topic. And the topic is this. Um, the question is, how are we going to put together the opinions uh, of, the mem- of the members of a group uh, in trying to come up with something like the collective opinion of the group? So suppose that the members of the group, for example, disagree. How are we going to come up with a concept of group opinion which is sensitive to how the disagreement plays out between the members of the group? And so this is a a question that has applications to all kinds of fields of study. So it has some applications in law, in political science, in economics. And one sort of natural thing you could think is that, look, one natural way of coming up with the opinion of the group is by taking the majority of the opinions of the members of the group. If you have five people and three of them believe that the bus, the 51, uh, went by five minutes ago, well, the collective opinion of the group is that the bus came by five minutes ago. Now, it turns out, though, that... uh, this idea of using the majority across the board is problematic because it is actually problematic in a very strong sense, in the sense that you could get, you could ascribe to the group a contradictory set of beliefs if you follow the majority. So, for example, suppose that you have two propositions. One is that uh, the philosophy department should get more grad students. But the other one is that the mathematics department should get more grad students. Okay. And imagine a, a panel of three people trying to decide on this issue. Okay. Now, there could be a, a situation in which there is a majority for the philosophy department should have more, more grad students, a majority for the, the math department should have more grad students, but a minority for the conjunction. So it could be the case that the majorities don't overlap, so that uh, uh, maybe person one and person two thinks that uh, the philosophy department should get more grad students, and person two and person three thinks that the math department should get uh, more grad students, but uh, only one person of the three thinks that both departments should get more grad students. So that if, you, if you were to apply this idea of majority across the board here, you would think that the group thinks that the philosophy department should have more grad students, the math department should have more grad students, but not, not both, right? But not both departments should have more grad students. So the project here is to try to understand how is it that you're going to, on the one hand, do justice of this idea that majority is something important, and on the other hand, sort of curb the apparent badness of this uh, idea of forming just majority uh, opinion by for forming collective opinion by just flat out majority. That's the idea. What do they? Lo- what do your models look like? The, the models themselves. What, what do they have? The models have sort of people, <laughs> or you know, with w- w- and, and but more importantly, to each person, uh, one tries to associate something like a representation of their opinion. There's various ways of trying to associate with a person a representation of, of their opinion, and uh, for example. Uh, if you go to a certain kind of philosopher, they will tell you that if you want to represent a person's opinion, uh, what you have to consider is which propositions they believe. In, in our example, say, number one is represented by the proposition the philosophy department should have uh, more grad students, the math department should have fewer grad students, and not both. So not both departments should have more grad students. Uh, or if you go to more... Uh, sort of science-minded people, they will tell you that if you wanted to represent somebody's opinion, you'd have to use probabilities. So how, how probable 
various things are. And there are, of course, uh, a lot of variations on, on, on both of these ideas. But you start with these materials. You start with some kind of representation of each individual's opinion, which is going to be a different representation according to sort of which dogmatic uh, framework you adopt. And once you have the individual opinions, you try to define a, proce- define a procedure uh, that's going to sort of uh, extract collective opinion out of the uh, out of the individuals so in, individual opinions. A lot of the formal work actually consists in this: start again with the representation of the opinions, trying to impose constraints on what you want the the aggregation function. This is the function that gives you from the individual opinions give you the collective opinion. Impose constraints on what that function can look like, and see which cons- constraints are compatible. That's mm-hmm. you could publish it, you know lots of papers doing this. So this is what happens at the formal level. A lot of people figuring out uh, which constraints are compatible. Now, at the informal level, the debate to be had is, well, once we know the two constraints are incompatible, uh, what do we do? And there's a lot of argument that, that basically normally involves just referring to some part of philosophy to motivate why this constraint is better than this other constraint. Right? Or in some cases, it's not even referring to particular parts of philosophy as much as maybe um, parts of legal theory or political science. It depends on, it partly depends on the application. What, what I like about models is that I can do my work and always defend myself by saying, oh, but your objection is not quite the kind of application I had in mind for the model. I like to work on something that a lot of different people could use for different purposes. And so eventually the adjudicating between these constraints that I was mentioning before kind of comes down to understanding exactly what kind of applications do we want to put the model to. And uh, maybe once we know something about the application, we can say something about which ones of these constraints uh, should be preferred over others. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example? Here's a condition you could impose, that uh, your the members of your group all have the same weight. Okay, so that you're but not going. Their opinions all have the same. Yes, weight. yes. You're not going to. Ca- sorry, not not their physical weight. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to count uh, somebody's opinion uh, as more important than somebody else's opinion. Uh, and there are some applications for which this is a wildly, wildly implausible assumption. Okay, so if you uh, if you suppose you're not asking a group of experts, but you're asking a group of sort of people of various, ex- or you're asking a family. There's a sense in which maybe you could put more trust in the opinion of the parents than you put in the opinion of the children. Uh, I hope this is not uh, politically incorrect to say, but uh, but but the, the, you can imagine there being cases in which some in, in, among the members of the group somebody's opinion matters more than somebody else. For example, because they studied the subject for years, and uh, uh, and the other people did not study the subject for years. So uh, you could imagine uh, cases in which this assumption would be violated. This assumption that every every member of the group has equal weight in uh, in kind of giving you the collective opinion, but you should also imagine context context in which the assumption should be upheld in a sense, right? So, for example, if you're trying to think of a democratic system and people are trying to make up their opinion about what to do, and you want to come up with the collective opinion of, of some kind of body that's acting democratically, you want to have a rule that gives equal weight to each one of the members of the group. Right. So in, in that context, I don't think you can negotiate on this idea that uh, the members of the group all have the same weight. Uh, so that, that would be an example of a constraint uh, that has different plausibility according to which application you're putting it to. You're tuned to The Graduates on 90.7 KALX. I'm Emily Ellers, and we're speaking with Fabrizio Cariani, a philosophy graduate student on models of ought and group decision-making. Now, Fabrizio, how did you get into this work? 
it's interesting. I started out uh, in philosophy doing some of the most informal work I could possibly be doing. I mean, in fact, when I was an undergrad, the kinds of things I liked about philosophy were, was, were the fact that it was asking big questions and uh, it was a subject where you could ask about, you know, what is existence? Does God exist? And, you know, all the questions that really philosophers through the centuries have sort of thought were uh, important. Uh, but sort of very slowly, it's very interesting, I drifted towards the a more, I don't want to say number crunching because we don't have to do much with number, but with, with the more sort of rigorous, but also in a way less uh, independently significant type of philosophical project. And so I, f- I think that I got into philosophy for, this, for the interest in these very big questions, but slowly my personality of being a mathy guy or a person who liked math sort of came out. And I, and I tried to find the areas of philosophy that had the most balance between uh, having some of that sort of ambition, theoretical ambition and at the same time formal rigor. And so that's what got me interested in these kinds of topics. And where are you taking it? Do you know what's next? Well, I basically for the next few years, uh, we were talking before and I was mentioning that I've been just recently on the dreadful academic job market. But uh, for the next few years, I plan to sort of, as I move through the profession, uh, to expand this work and try to find new areas of application for some of the ideas that have been coming up. So one of the things that I'm interested in on the first project, the one that was about uh, uh, language, I, I'm interested in figuring out how the bits of language that express desires uh, is related to the bits of language that express norms. And so whether the very same ideas that I describe uh, or the very same ideas that I adopt in trying to understand how art works could be used interestingly to model how words like wanting and want or desiring, hoping, how those constructions work. Basically, the sort of the, the road ahead is to see how um, sort of the general lines of explanation can be exported to some other parts of language. And as far as the the other project, the project on the on testimony and group, uh, on group opinion, I basically just want to continue doing it because I've actually been neglecting it a little bit uh, when I was con- sort of elaborating the content of my dissertation. My dissertation really is the, on the language stuff. The stuff about group opinion has been uh, a very important, but in a sense, a side project. You know how, how bands uh, have side projects and, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, they put out maybe, the band puts out three records and then your side project puts out one record. And your that, solo that, project. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's kind of, what, that's kind of this, what, what this is. It's, it's, it's my side project, but it's a project that they really care for. And once I'm done with the dissertation, I just hope to make a, a stronger contribution than I had so far. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been wonderful. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Yes. You've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research every Monday from 12 until 1230 on CalX 90.7. My name is Emily Ellers. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you have any comments or ideas for future guests, please don't hesitate. Feel free to email me at graduates.calx at gmail.com. <laughs>